Good morning and happy Sabbath. My message today is entitled, Approved by God. The subtitle of it is, Believing what God says about me, not what I say about myself. Each Sunday evening, I I, uh, go into a Zoom call with some friends around the country. And we study, we have a Bible study. The topics vary from week to week, but I've come to really love these people. One of them, the fellow who leads it, used to be my neighbor back in Iowa. He lived 10 miles away, but he still was a neighbor. He was a man that I came to love very much during times when I had been rejected by many others due to my own behavior, he stood behind me and I needed somebody during that time. And he was there. But this several weeks ago, he said something that really impacted me. And that was, he told a story of how his wife Mavis, one time as they were riding in the car, looked at him and said, I don't think you see yourself as approved by God. Ed then took me to an Ellen White quote in The Desire of Ages, page 113. That's That's what you're seeing up on the screen right now. It reads like this, the word that was spoken to Jesus at the Jordan This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, embraces humanity. God spoke to Jesus as our representative. With all our sins and weaknesses, we are not cast aside as worthless. He hath made us accepted in the beloved. Ephesians 1 verse 6. The glory that rested upon Christ is a pledge of the love of God for us. It tells us of the power of prayer, of the human voice, how the human voice may reach the ear of God and our petitions find acceptance in the courts of heaven. By sin, earth was cut off from heaven and alienated from its communion. But Jesus was connected, Jesus has connected it again with the sphere of glory. His love has encircled man and reached the highest heaven, the light which fell from the open portals upon the head of our Savior will fall upon us as we pray for help to resist temptation. The voice which spoke to Jesus says, Every believing soul, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. I just wanted to check to make sure the red was coming through. Ed's story quickly moved to the background as I realized that I myself didn't feel confident in God's love for me. I knew that there was a hole in my heart that had to be filled. I knew that it was important to settle the matter in my heart. God's love sometimes seemed highly conditional to me. I feared that his displeasure in my behavior could send him away, leaving me alone. 
But here was Ellen White giving me hope, telling me that I was already accepted by God and that he loved me. How I wanted that to be true. Theologians have a term for that. They often call it unmerited favor or grace. So where does, where does the idea that God's love is conditional come from? Well, it comes from a world full of wounded and broken people. My story contains an individual who was broken. My mother, Ava Marie, was born in Suffolk, Germany, to a lady who was a seamstress, Charlotte, and her mom was a seamstress when, they li when, when she lived in Austria, Vienna, Austria. In fact, the family's understanding is that she lived in the home of a rich man, and that rich man was probably her father. She eventually married, uh, in Berlin, she married a man named uh, Frederick, and, that, and that's when they had uh, little Ava Marie. I don't know what took place in all those years. The only thing I know is that Charlotte, my grandmother, was a horribly bitter lady. When I was a child, everything was fine, but as, as I grew older, I could see what other people were seeing, and that is, is that she was angry, just terribly angry. They left Germany probably in about 1928, 1929, somewhere in there, when the economy was so horrible. There was terrible political uprisings and so forth in Germany. And they came to the United States because Frederick's mother and brother were living in Chicago. They eventually moved to Minneapolis. And uh, Frederick took up his regular trade, this time with Honeywell, as a, uh, as a machinist. And Charlotte became a uh, furrier, or a lady sewing, a, a person who sews uh, furs at a big store there called Bjorkman's. And they, many feel that Frederick left the family, he divorced her. When my mom was probably about seven or eight, and some, and, and um, her little, she had a little sister who was born and, and was about a year and a half or two years old probably when Frederick left. And when he left, he didn't come back. In fact, I think the only time my mom saw Frederick again was one time when she was walking down the streets of Minneapolis with my father when they were dating. And my dad says that they passed a man who looked just like my mother. In fact, so much so, he turned around, and when he did, this man turned around and looked as well. It's probably the only time they saw one another after he had left.
Times were hard during that, during that period of time. We were just coming out of a depression. In fact, some would say we were still in a depression in this country. In fact, a worldwide depression. And things were heating up in Europe as everybody was preparing for war. People would leave groceries at their door, and that's the only way they could survive. As a result of that, my mom was constantly chasing after understanding who she was and what her value was. She was a wonderful woman. I love her dearly. But her job was important to her. She was the head cashier at a local grocery store. And it was important to her that she was an important individual in that chain of, of duties there at the grocery store. But she had a hard time understanding her own value and thus giving to us our own sense of value. We were the lucky ones, her sister Lorraine. Because she was so young when her father left them, left, uh, would go down when she got uh, big enough, she would go down at the end of the block where there was a bar and she would sit on the concrete stoop waiting for men to go in and out of the bar. And as they went in and out, they would pet her on the head and they would give her candy. The results of her life were that of her three boys, two of them spent a significant amount of time in prison. The anger in that home was just unbelievable. I tell you this because in our families we can be taught that we have very little value. You've heard me speak of this before. In fact, the last time I spoke to you, which was about a month ago, I brought this up. It's very important to understand the importance of affirming the value of each individual, not just in our families, but in our communities. Why is that? Because, as I said, during this period of time, Europe was about ready to go to war. My mom would go to school and she would hear taunts like Hatsi Tatsi, another Nazi. There were other things. But again, it made it difficult for her to be able to accept love. It made it difficult for her to understand somebody who loved her. So family background, friends or colleagues can destroy our idea of unconditional love. But yet God has that for us. There's also some church cultures that can destroy the concept of unconditional love. I think it particularly happens in congregations that still believe, rightly so, in the permanence of God's holy law. 
I'm not putting down the law. What I'm simply saying is this. There are some people whose backgrounds are such that it's easy for them to slip into legalism. In fact, our own misreading of Scripture can cause us also to slip into legalism. Why is that? Well, one of the things that I notice, for example, is that people are afraid to give Bible studies. Why are they afraid of giving Bible studies? Well, it's because they're afraid that they don't know the basic fundamentals of Adventist belief well enough. What happens if they find somebody who's also well-schooled in the Bible and challenges them? You see? We mark our Bibles for the fundamental belief studies, but we fail to spend time reading about God's love for us and ingraining it in our hearts. And when we talk to people, we fail to talk to them about God's love first, that they might understand something about who he is. We've got some trouble with the slides. It's, it's, some of the slides are missing. So uh, just bear with me as best you can. Love comes only through relationship. Abraham believed or trusted God's promise. Now it's interesting that Genesis 15 verse 6 tells us about this. It says, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. Abraham was given promises by the Lord. He was promised a land that the Lord would take him to. He was promised that the Lord would give him offspring that were like the sand of the sea or the stars in the sky. And we all know that Abraham had at times difficulty in believing those promises. In fact, it's interesting to me that at least two times, and I think more, as you read through the entire story in, in uh, chapters, Genesis chapters 12 through 17, what you'll see, in fact, it goes further than that, but 22 actually, but nonetheless, what, I, what I'm trying to get at here is the idea that in, in Genesis chapter, uh, in, in, the, in Genesis, when we read the story of Abraham, we see that he goes to God and he always is asking the Lord, how will I know that you're going to give me an offspring? How will I know that, going to, that there's going to be a promised land? He would always be asking the Lord that. But what we find out is, is when we go to Hebrews chapter 11, which is the faith chapter in Hebrews, what we find out is, is that Abraham believed God. Paul rewrites that. He says, Abraham believed God. When God asked him to take his son Isaac and offer him, Abraham's response was, when, the, when, the, when Isaac says, uh, where is the lamb? 
Abraham told Isaac, the Lord will provide himself a lamb. Abraham had finally arrived. He had come to the point where he believed and he trusted God. That's the beginning of relationship. And as I just said, it takes time uh, for that relationship to, to grow. When you read Abraham, sometimes we, we maybe even chuckle a little bit because of Abraham, the things that Abraham does. Or we look at it and we say, well, Abraham's no different than I would have been. I would have been looking for ways to help God to be successful in what he promised me. You see, God can do just great with a little help from me. That's what we think. The other thing is, is that God always takes the initiative. Before, if Jeremiah 1 verse 5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Now, isn't that amazing? That before we were in the, in the womb, he had already mapped out what would happen in our lives and what his plans were for us. Grace. But what is the gospel of grace? Scripture tells me love is the most exceptional gift of all. And grace is the means God employs for me to experience it. Romans 5 verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We also read by, from Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 19. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Jesus in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Before man was even created, the Godhead came together with a plan. Should man, if mankind should fall, a plan was made for the salvation of the world. Scripture, for them, from the tender way in which mankind was created in God's image, to the miraculous redemption of Israel from Egyptian slavery, to the sending of Jesus for our own redemption from sin radiates love. That love has resulted in an outpouring of grace, and his grace is what calls me to him, that I might be saved. Grace is the trusting payment by another for the cleansing and freedom I receive in the very moment I need it most. Let us then, Hebrews 4 verse 16 reads, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every major religion, except for those tracing their origin back to Abraham, are based on performing for or pleasing their deity. That's what sacrifices were all about in these false religions, is that they were there to feed and care for the gods 
these false gods. It's only in Christianity that you will find God coming to earth and serving mankind. It's not just that God's service for us, for, for us uh, is for the propitiation of our sins. It's that when we are in the greatest need, Jesus is there for us. Grace is the means to my eternal salvation and God's only resource for my maturing as a saint. Titus 2, 11 to 12. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Paul makes this statement about Jesus' first appearance. Not only does grace provide us with deep love from our Creator, but it establishes the means by which God works in us to move us to maturity. God's grace not only forgives us of our sins, but it changes who we are. In Steps to Christ, we read these encouraging words about grace. It's in Steps to Christ, page 18. It is impossible for us of ourselves to escape from the pit of sin in which we are sunken. Our hearts are evil and we cannot change them. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean one? Out of unclean, no one. The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. Those come from Job 14, verse 4, and Romans 8, verse 7. Education, culture, the exercise of the will, human effort, all have their proper sphere. But, but here they are powerless. They may produce an outward correctness of behavior, but they cannot change the heart. They cannot purify the springs of life. There must be a power working from within, a new life from above, before men can be changed from sin to holiness. That power is Christ. His grace alone can quicken the lifeless faculties of the soul and attract it to God, to holiness, uh, attract it to God, to holiness. So where should our focus be? Should it be at pleasing God or trusting God? What's our motive? Is this getting, if this gets to be too distracting, because I've got about every other slide missing, so if it gets too distracting, let me know and we'll just turn off the slides. Pleasing God versus trusting God. Either we obey him to make him pleased with us, or we obey him because we're convinced he is already pleased with us. And in Hebrews 11, verse 6, we read, And without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must, be, must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. When we see our acceptance by God based on our performance, we end up tired and disillusioned, and will soon discover that we cannot keep him pleased enough to satisfy, satisfy our view of who he is. Faith is the only way we ever access our relationship with God and will always be the basis for our relationship. Romans 1 verse 17, For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. When we trust God, pleasing 
uh, uh, when we trust God, pleasing him will follow in its wake. Just as our relationship grows with our spouse or our friend, love grows and pleasing him grows with it. But then we come to guilt and shame. Yeah, we're just going to stop doing the slides. There's too many missing. Guilt causes us to take action to clean up conscience. Shame causes us to hide from God and others. Love never uses shame. So what do we do about unresolved spring uh, sin? Well, as I said, shame causes us to hide from God. We talked about that in the Sabbath school lesson today, didn't we? We talked about how Adam and Eve, when they had sinned, what was the first thing they did? They ran and they hid. Hiddenness is a hallmark of shame. We all long to be known. But shame in its deceptive nature always drives us away from relationship. In Genesis chapter 3, after partaking of the forbidden fruit, man now feels shame and runs away from God. Our shame leads us to believe that because of our sins, whether they be sexual, addictions, relational, self-reliance, or pride, I should hide who I am. Sin keeps in the dark. Uh, sin is kept in the dark, and can and can never be resolved. Can be never be resolved. This is why we often call these unresolved sins. We think we can or must handle these on our own, which only perpetuates the feeling of being bound. The effect of shame and unresolved sin can manifest itself in different ways. It can manifest itself as fear, blame, denial, anger, or many others. If you recall, as we studied in our lesson today, Adam and Eve, how, how it was manifested in them was they ran, and when they were confronted by God, they started to blame everybody but themselves. Adam blamed the woman. He blamed God. It's the woman that you gave me. And Eve, of course, blamed the snake. So we see how this works. We vacillate between fear and denial. Maybe the things I've kept hidden weren't that bad after all. If somebody gets too close to tearing down my self-protective wall, we intentionally explode in rage. Sometimes we feel like the adulterous woman of of, uh, John chapter 8, where she's brought, I'm imagining she's brought in great nervousness as she's brought in front of the of the uh, religious leaders and Jesus, not knowing what's going to happen to her. It could be as bad as being stoned to death. And she, all of her dignity was almost, had to almost have to be lost. Imagine yourself being brought in front of a group of church leaders for the sin of adultery. You can imagine Jesus looked at the woman and gently spoke truth and grace. He, remind, he reminded me that he just didn't love, or he reminded her that he just didn't love the cleaned up parts of me. He loved all of me. He didn't excuse my sin, but neither did he condemn me, which actually led me to repentance. Well, how about trials and judgment then? 
When we think about God's judgment or trials in our lives, we often think of it in human terms as punishment. It's not. Joel 2 verse 13 reads, Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. He relents from sending calamity. When brought to uh, in the Desire of Ages, page 301, we read, When brought into trial, we are not to fret and complain. We should not rebel or worry ourselves out of the hand of uh, Christ. We are to humble the soul before God. Trial leads to repentance. Repentance leads to forgiveness. Solomon's prayer of dedication at the temple is an interesting story for me. I love it. It's in uh, Second King or First Kings, rather. I forget if it's. I think it might be five or eight, something like that. Where, where Solomon uh, dedicates the temple. And it's interesting that in his dedicatory prayer, he prays to the Lord because he knows that there's going to be times when Israel will leave their Redeemer. And he says, Lord, when Israel does that, when Israel finds themselves in a foreign land and they turn themselves to you in repentance, I pray that you would hear their voice when they call to you hear their voice and he goes through a couple of iterations of that but that's what that's what Solomon the the wise man said uh, prayed to the Lord because we see that what happens is is that God uses the trials in our lives he uses the things that uh, that we think of as judgment uh, uh, oftentimes in our lives he uses those to pull us closer to him to draw us closer to him and uh uh, in fact, one of my, I think I might have said this once before, but I love it so much. Um, when uh, Gaither, Gloria Gaither, she's got a beautiful way with words, if you've ever heard her words. And she, the, way, the terms that she uses is, when God crowds his people close to him. I love to imagine that in my mind. When things are going so horribly wrong and God is using that, to crowd us closer to him. In the end, there will be two groups of people. The one group will say to God, thy will be done. To the other group, God will say, thy will be done. God respects our individual choices. Remember, I spoke earlier about guilt. Here's where the commandments come in. Romans 3, verses 20 to 24. There is no, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the work of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption of Jesus. Luke tells a story in chapter 15 of his gospel about the Pharisee and the, and the tax collector. The two of them are praying and the Pharisee stands there with his hands held up and his eyes towards heaven thanking the Lord that he wasn't made or wasn't like 
that tax collector. You need to understand some of the background of that in order to understand the lesson that's being uh, given here. And that is, is that the tax collector was considered to be a traitor, a thief, because oftentimes the tax collectors, as they collected money for Rome, for hated Rome, they, they would take and add a little bit to the tax bill in order to make themselves rich. And so the Jews hated the tax collectors. Even though they were Jews, they were, not, they were traitors. And so the, the, the Pharisee thanks God for all the wonderful things that, that he is and all the good works that he has done. And then it comes to the tax collector and the tax collector is looking down. He won't even look up to the heavens. And he prays and he asks the Lord to be merciful with him. It then goes on, Luke then goes on to say it was the tax collector who left forgiven. It's not those who come with much pride, with the great feelings of how, how much they have done for the Lord. It's not the ones who can go through on their fingers and count the number of ways that they have avoided sin. It's the ones who stand before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm helpless. I need you. Ellen White sums it up beautifully in The Desire of Ages, page 300, where she writes, The proud heart strives to earn salvation, but both our title to heaven and our fitness for it are found in the righteousness of Christ. The Lord can do nothing toward the recovery of man until convicted of his own weakness and stripped of all self-sufficiency. He yields himself to the control of God. Then he can re- then. then then, uh, then he can receive the gift that God is waiting to bestow. From the soul that fills its need, nothing is withheld. So, maybe we should try it, if we haven't done this already. Maybe we should try a different way. Maybe we should accept God's loving approval understanding that Christ's that uh, Christ's record is mine the approval of god is not earned but received it does not come it does not come to you on the basis of merit but on the basis of mercy a life of ministry does not flow from an attempt to win the approval of god it flows from the joy of receiving the approval of god through jesus christ our lord The next thing we should do is, is beware of experts in the law. We've all run into them. In Acts chapter 15, 11 through 12, Paul has questions as do perhaps some of the other apostles and they go to Jerusalem, uh, to the council at Jerusalem, and they say, what is it that we should have the Gentiles do? What should be the requirements that we place on the Gentiles? And the response is a bit overwhelming. It says, now then, why do you try to test God 
by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Some years back, several years back, I was going on visitation, uh, going to visit uh, people with a, with, a, with a pastor. And an older member had recently died. And so we went to his home because his daughter was there. And we sat there and talked to her about her father. He had not been in church for a while, even though at one time he had been an elder. And she looked at us, and I'm not sure what her look conveyed, if it was sorrow or disgust. She was no longer an Adventist herself. She said, do you know why my father didn't come to church anymore? We asked why. She said, because every so often he liked to have a diet Pepsi. And he knew that he shouldn't be drinking diet Pepsis. And so because he was ashamed, he quit coming to church. My response was, oh my God. Please forgive us. We heap things up on people. Instead of talking about the mercy of God. Who knows what may have happened if somebody had gone to that man and said, Jesus loves you and he loves you no matter what you are doing right now. Come to Jesus. Let's pray right now. Come to Jesus. And when you feel his love surrounding you, this desire for Pepsi may leave. It may not. But the thing that surely is true is that he would have died knowing God's love rather than feeling shame. Now, I don't know where he's at or was at in his life, but I just know that the last thing I want to be thinking when I'm on the deathbed is, is God pleased with me? I want to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God indeed loves me and is greatly pleased with me. The third thing in this different approach is remember that none of us have arrived. Baptism is a public expression or acknowledgement to the Lord and of the congregation that your desire is to partner with him, not agree to a sinless life for the rest of uh, the church. 
a future sinless life to the church. The, the fourth thing is, remember these three really important words. I need help. That's all that the Lord is waiting for, is for you to acknowledge that there's nothing in you that will bring you into his kingdom. The only thing we can do is go to him, ask for forgiveness, and ask for help to overcome. C.S. Lewis, in his introduction to mere Christianity, makes a statement that I've always loved. And, uh, and that is, he was talking to, about the idea of people who would come to Christianity and he didn't want them to look to him as the, great, as the great example. And he wrote it this way. Think of me as a fellow patient in the same hospital who, having been admitted a little earlier, could give some advice. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. Philippians 1 verse 6 says, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. If you've been struggling with unresolved sin, if you've been struggling with wondering, does God really love you? Is it possible for him to love me when I am the way that I am? The answer today is the most assured, absolutely yes. God isn't just looking for you to come to him. Just like in the Garden of Eden, he is to come looking for you. So as you leave here, please remember those four things. There might be others. There are things I came up with. (laughs) Maybe you've got others. But just simply make sure that as you go through your life that you constantly look to the Lord for your salvation and for your help. 